Please open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 9. For an opening text of Scripture, Acts chapter 9. The Apostle Paul, when confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ on his way to Damascus, asked a question that we all ask from time to time, and we all want an answer for the question. And I want to use this question of his as a starting point for our consideration of God's Word this morning. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 6, we read, And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. That's a question that we often have. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What is the will of God for my life? What is God's will for this event? And we wish the answer was as forthcoming as it was for Paul. Arise, that's easy, get up, go into Damascus, and I'll tell you the next stage. We all wish it was that simple. We want to know exactly what the Lord would have us do for the various dilemmas that we face, choices that we make, and decisions before us. We want God to tell us His will. What is the will of God for my life? What is the will of God in this matter? And so I would like to address that this morning. Knowing the will of God. Two weeks ago I preached to you, every word of God is pure. Amen. I showed you by example from the New Testament eight times that the Lord Jesus and Paul argued important doctrinal matters, including his deity and the benefits of salvation in the spiritual Israel, from single words in which we saw the importance of every word of God. Last Sunday, I showed you how much the holy God hates compromising and modifying his holy word. When he has given us a commandment, he wants us to obey it exactly, not to add to it, not to take away from it, not to turn to the left, nor to turn to the right, but to do exactly as he has taught us. And to compromise brings severe judgment upon men, which we saw by numerous examples last Sunday. There's a lot of confusion about the will of God. Everyone, I hope, that calls themselves a Christian wants to know God's will for their life, wants to know God's will in the specific choices and decisions you make, but they're not sure how to find that will. And in my experience of being around other believers, I've heard so much about wanting to know the will of God. I'm seeking the will of God. I need to know what God's will is. And so we want to answer that question. Our goal should be to grow in favor with God and man. Because that's what our Lord Jesus Christ did. Luke 2.52 tells us he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That means he was doing the will of God. We want to be growing like that. But how do we know what God's will is for our life? Many people think that true success in life will only be found if I make all the right choices every time. That I better make sure 
that I get, that I choose the right major in college or my life will be ruined. Before that, that I go to the right college or my life will be ruined. And then once I'm out of college, if I make it that far in the single state, that spouse, there's only one spouse in all the earth created for me. And how do I find her? There's now three billion women. How do I find the one for me? The one that God chose for me. How do I know the will of God in marriage? How do I know which church to go to? I've heard so many times. Well, we're trying churches right now, waiting for the will of the Lord. What job do I take? There's all these jobs in the newspaper. Which job is the right job? If I don't pick the right one that's God's will for my life, I'll be ruined. A house, a car, and I see all this perplexity, this painful perplexity in the hearts of some men about wanting to make sure that they're doing God's will at every step. The intention and ambition is noble. The result is horrible. And that is worrying about some of these things. I want to leave you this morning with the carefree life of a person that puts their trust in God. Life can be, should be, carefree. Did you see in Psalm 112 any perplexity on the part of that man? He guides his affairs with discretion. His heart will never be moved because he trusts in God. We want to consider God's will for your life. You know, when I worked among pagans, now I get to work with one pagan, myself, in the quietness of my office, there's just one pagan there, me. But in the past, when I worked with lots of pagans, if someone got a promotion, or if something good happened to someone, you know they, they bought the right lottery ticket. The expression that would be made was, he must be doing something right. And by that statement, they're affirming a doctrine. And that, that doctrine is that the favor and the will of God is identified by circumstances. And I want to undo that today. Now, I wrote you something this week. But I've been pressed with this all week long. Because Monday was one of those momentous moments in life when God pressed upon me the importance of remembering what He taught in His Word about circumstances. And I wrote you about it. And I want to teach it to you this morning so that you won't forget it. Pagans think that circumstances are the evidence of God, and really they're not referring to God, they're referring to fate. When they say he must be doing something right, well, the gods have smiled upon him. Oh, brethren, we're not to measure our lives that way. Right. Others, others will say, when you ask them, how did you make this decision? I just had a peace about it. I just had a peace about it. You know, I read this past week in a little bit of pleasure reading, or it wasn't really pleasurable, a little bit of reading about McVeigh, the bomber of Oklahoma City. He had a piece about it. He had a piece that that's what he ought to do. And he did it when it was over, and he saw all the collateral damage, 
as he called it, he still had a piece about it. Now, are we going to measure that? I use that little expression because you've all heard it, haven't you? How, how do you know that's what you ought? I just have a piece about it. Well, brethren, I want to make war against that also because that's measuring God's will by feelings. Right. I have a piece about it. Now, I'm, I'm going to leave a place for God to give peace. But, oh, you better get there through the right doors. Amen. You better get there through the right doors before you start talking about the peace you have in making a decision. The Apostle Paul had quite a bit of peace on his way to Damascus before he met the Lord. He said, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. Let's be careful about that one. Let me talk for a moment to you about the weather. This is what I wrote you. Some have read it. Some understood it. I'm sure not all of you read it or understood it. Monday was as perfect of a day as you could ask for. The humidity on Monday and the sunshine and the temperature combined for a phenomenal day. I was up very early that day, usual on Mondays, because I can't sleep on Sunday nights. But any, I was up very early and outside very early, long before others were up or outside. And already you knew what was coming. The temperature and the humidity was wonderful. And it remained that way all day. And I remember thinking to myself and thinking with the Lord, thank you for being my God. It is such a blessing to be out here. And your sunshine is so precious. And this whole earth is spinning away. And six billion people are getting up and going to bed and very few are giving you any attention at all. And I felt like the Lord was with me. And he was. He was, but he was telling me something. Don't measure me, Jonathan, by the sunshine on your face or the good feeling in your lungs by the low humidity in the cool air. Measure me by my word. Now, I'm not yeah. telling you I had a vision. Please, any of you who think that I've just gone off the deep end and plunged into a pool of chlorine and it affected my mind, I didn't say that. I said this was the thoughts he impressed upon me by his spirit. I didn't hear any audible voice, but it was a very real lesson. And then in thinking upon the word of God and coming in immediately early that morning and realizing how true, how true, because anyone could have got up the same morning and if you went outside, you'd have got the same feelings I had. But brethren, on that day in this sunny city, as I wrote to you, people died and went to hell. Children died. God's judgment was upon men. And Psalm 711 was true, that the Lord is angry with the wicked every day. Right. So there was that sunshine deceiving me unless, and that's that, that unless is what I want to teach you this morning. That sunshine is deceiving unless you understand it properly. Because God sends that sunshine and His rain on the evil and the good. So it is no indicator whatsoever of God's favor. God's favor is to be found elsewhere. And then, once you're inside God's favor as proven from elsewhere, the sunshine and the rain takes on incredible blessing. But to presume 
on the sunshine and the rain as the indicators of God's love and affection is false thinking. It's wrong. Because, brethren, he sends it on the most evil men that live in our whole... If they would have got up that morning and gone outside, what a great day to go golfing. What a great day to go kill someone. He sends the same sunshine. Do not measure your life by such things. There is a way to measure your life. I want to remind you that in Acts chapter 14, when Paul was addressing some pagans who had just tried to worship him and Barnabas, he said, God sends fruitful seasons into your hearts, showing that he's good. And that sunshine and that rain is a constant witness, God is good. And any man should be able to recognize it, and hardly any do. But it is not an evidence that we're righteous and that we're doing the will of God. God has called us to do His will. There's so many verses. I'm, we're just going to look at a few. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Let's look at the fact that God does want us to do His will. 1 John chapter 2. We are called to do the will of God. I want to read these verses here. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That is what we're to choose. There's two options here of living. We can live, one, letting the world push us with all of its sensual stimulus, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And it is bombarding us in this generation because we're the first generation that the world's been able to come inside our home with all the various media that it has to affect us with those three lusts. It's a constant bombardment, but we're to choose the will of God. And the one who rejects the world and chooses the will of God he will abide forever. The promise of God. This is our call to doing the will of God. And brethren, in this assembly, in this assembly, because God has shown us so much about His will, if we fail to do it, we are going to be beaten with many stripes. Because Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48 tell us that when a servant knew his master's stripes, knew his master's will, and didn't do it, he shall be beaten with many stripes. But the servant that didn't know his master's will will be beaten with few. We have an obligation upon us to do the will of God, or we'll be beaten with many stripes. And yes, that's a negative encouragement for us to do the will of God. Psalm 112 was the positive encouragement to do the will of God. Let's do the will of God. Let's find out how we keep the will of God. Let's first of all look a little further at circumstances. Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I want to remind you that I've already referred to Matthew chapter 5 verse 45 that says that God sends His Son and rain on the evil and the good, the just and the unjust, There is no discriminating favor shown by God in the elements. That's how he loves his enemies. 
That's how he shows goodness to the whole earth. That's how we're to, we're to emulate that by doing good to our enemies. That's where the passage comes from, Matthew chapter 5. But now I want to read to you a few verses from Ecclesiastes 9 to even further that point, that we not measure God's favor or will by circumstances. Verse 1, For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. There is no doubt about that. The righteous and the wise, their works are held up in the hand of God. He providentially will take care of them and protect them. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. You cannot measure the love or the hatred of God by the circumstances of life. This is a warning. Do not measure the love or the hatred of God by circumstances. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean, and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath. There's a whole, there's a whole list of contrasts. Here's a man that swears freely. He uses oaths often in a sinful way. And then there's a man that fears making an oath because he's obedient. He's a righteous man. There's, this is a list of contrasts. And Solomon is teaching us that there is no difference in the way that they're treated by external circumstances. But now I want you to notice, he already started the passage off by saying that everything that the righteous and the wise do are in the hand of God. God's approval, God's protection, and God's blessing is upon them, but it is not to be determined by external, outside circumstances. This, You know what he says about this? This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madnesses in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Because evil men get up the same way that I got up Monday morning. And they step outside, they take great big lungfuls of that beautiful air, they feel the sunshine, they love the temperature, they stretch, and they say, what an awesome day. And then they madly rush after their lusts. That's what Ecclesiastes 9.3 tells us. And there's no way that we can tell God's love or his hatred by measuring life by circumstances. Come back one page to Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 15. I find this so precious for God testing us to see if we will love him and trust him even though he doesn't make an external difference because he's made an internal difference and we are in his hand. And brethren, I want to be in his hand if the sun never shines again. I would rather be in his hand if the sun never shines and it never rains. How tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. As long as the Lord Jesus Christ is with us, I hope that prisons would palaces prove like they did for Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 15, All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, 
and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. How much more evidence do you need? Do we need to go to Psalm 73 where Asaph cries out that I have cleansed my hands in vain? He was envious at the prosperity of the wicked. When Asaph looked around, he saw the wicked growing fat, happy, and old. They were strong at the time of death. And he says, here am I plagued every day and every night. There he was looking at external circumstances. Then he went into the house of the Lord, and he was reminded of a few internal things and internal differences that God is going to make and has made with the righteous against the wicked. That's Psalm 73. Brethren, I hope these verses are enough. Do not measure God's love or God's hatred or God's approval or God's will by the external things happening in your life. We'll get to the criterion in just a moment. I want to, first of all, undo this idea of circumstances. You don't need a fleece like Gideon. Gideon is not an example of great faith. You say Gideon made it to Hebrews 11. Yes, so did Samson. What else do you want to try to prove about Gideon from Hebrews 11? Other than the fact that the Lord is gracious. Amen. Gideon was fearful. And he kept testing the Lord because he was afraid. You find godly men in the word of God. Why didn't Abraham, if, if any man should have put out a fleece, Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, when he was told to go offer his son as a burnt sacrifice, should have at least tried one fleece, don't you think? But he didn't because Abraham was the father of the faithful. He just rose up early in the morning and went and did it. Gideon put out his fleece. And so I've heard Christians say, not a single one, I've heard this several times, well, I'm doing this such and such as a fleece. Oh, brethren, do you know what you're saying? Circumstances reveal the will of God. And so I'm waiting for a change in circumstances. I've told the Lord that I'm going to buy a new car tomorrow if the temperature's above 54 at 715. Well, what in the world? Where did you get such a crazy idea? You say you're making fun of fleeces. Where do you have an exhortation from God to use fleeces? I want to see if you can find any event in your life that you'd ever need a fleece. He's told you how to make all decisions in your life according to his will without using fleeces. The fleece you set your eyes upon may not be from the Lord, at all. And if you set a fleece out, you don't know what the Lord's going to do with that fleece because you've set something above the Lord. And that is circumstances. You want him to deal with you in a special way that he has not chosen to deal with you because he's already dealt with us in a better way. That way is the word of God, which I'll get to in just a moment. That way is the word of God. It is not circumstances. If you allow the fleece mentality... You're opening yourself up to deceiving circumstances. How will you ever know? What if I come along and say, that was just a chance? Or what if I come along, and this is what I would prefer to say, God gave you your fleece to tempt you. Rather than giving you his fleece to guide you. Then what will you say? How will you be able to tell me that your fleece was God guiding you when I'm telling you your fleece was God tempting you? You can't. You know, there's only one more sure word. You know that, don't you? 
and it's not a fleece. There's no surety in a fleece at all. Unless you're going to ask for something really bizarre. I want a sword to fall from the sky and land in the front yard. You'll be waiting a long time for the decision, for that decision to be made. Let's consider positive circumstances for a moment with me, if you will, that do not prove God's favor upon a person. Just a few examples. I read about a man in the Bible named Nabal. It says he was a very great man. That means he was rich. And it lists some of his assets in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Nabal was a very great man. Was Nabal a good man? Was he an evil man? Was he a churlish man? Was he a son of Belial? Was he a fool? Did God love Nabal? Did God judge Nabal severely? Did God give him a heart of stone for ten days and then kill him? Did God take his wife away from him and give give her to a better man? But he was a great man. David is the one running with nothing. And Nabal was the one that had huge flocks. God's favor was upon which one, David or Nabal? How about Nebuchadnezzar? Has there ever been a greater king, a richer king, a bigger city, a bigger palace? Isn't Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible the head of gold of the kingdoms of the earth? Was God's favor with Nebuchadnezzar? God used Nebuchadnezzar, but God put Nebuchadnezzar down on his hands and knees for seven years. God's favor was not upon Nebuchadnezzar's choices. Nebuchadnezzar made a choice to be arrogant, but he was blessed abundantly. His outward circumstances, how could the man not walk through his palace and say, look what I've built for the honor and majesty of my kingdom. But God was not with him. God was with the little eunuch following him around. And his name was Daniel, who said, break off thy sins and thy transgressions, if it might be a lengthening of thy tranquility. And he didn't, but he still had all of that success. I read in Luke chapter 16 about a rich man who fared sumptuously every day. When that man died, where did he go? To hell. hell. He lifted up his eyes in hell, but he fared sumptuously every day. He He was blessed abundantly by outward circumstances. Roman Catholics are the largest Catholic denomination. Should we measure anything by circumstances of size or blessing or numbers or churches or parishes? They're the largest. Is their doctrine the truest? Or is it the worst? Does God say that they are the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth? The Mormons are the fastest growing. But clearly pagan. Should we measure things by how quickly they grow? No. Those are positive circumstances that do not give us an indication of God's favor or blessing or truth upon them. How about negative circumstances? If circumstances are negative in your life, that is, some some bad things have happened, some troubling things, does that mean that God is not approving of your life? I know of three men who thought that way. Do you know of three men who thought that way? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They went and told Job that obviously he's got some horrible sins in his life and God is punishing him for them. And that was not the case. That was not the case. Brethren, I know of a young man named Joseph. 
who had a bunch of older brothers. These older brothers had wives and houses. He saw them living happily and cheerfully, children, assets accumulating, wives to go home to at night, and Joseph was a single young man. And they took Joseph and sold him as a slave to a band of Midianites. And he was taken down into Egypt, far away from his family, where he was a servant sold to the guard of Pharaoh named Potiphar. Who was the Lord with? The brothers at home that got to crawl into bed at night with a wife and had children and assets accumulating, or the little servant boy down in Egypt? Amen. Joseph. What does the Bible say? But the Lord was with him. Amen. How about when he obeyed God? And for his obedience, he was thrown into prison and lost his job where he had been the chief steward of Potiphar's house and assets. Does that mean that he was no longer in the favor of God? The Lord was with him there. How about when he saved, when he, when he gave a prophecy that indicated that a, about the futures of the butler and the baker, and he was forgotten and left there for another two years, does that look like God's favors upon him? Does it look like God's favors upon him? No, it doesn't look like God's favors upon him. Is God's favor upon him? Yes. Amen, brethren. Negative circumstances don't prove a thing. Don't you forget about Job. Job was very rich and lost everything, but it was not an evidence that he was not pleasing to God because we're able to read the divine revelation that his life definitely pleased God, so much so that God bragged about him to the devil. And called him a righteous man. Have you considered my servant Job? He lifted him up highly, even though his circumstances wouldn't lead you to it. I want you to think about that rich man again, who fared sumptuously. Can you envision his table? That rich man, sitting at that table, gorging himself on all the delicacies that were available in Judea? What, who was at his gate? There was a poor man named Lazarus who was laid there, covered with sores, and the dogs came and licked his sores. Of those two men, which the Lord Jesus Christ drew the distinction for us, I'm not pulling this out of some obscure passage. Jesus gave us this great contrast, the rich man faring sumptuously every day, and Lazarus being licked by dogs. Which one would you rather be? Which one was doing the will of God? Which one had God's favor upon him? Lazarus. The angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. Amen. Now, if you were to look at those two, don't you dare, don't you dare make a judgment as to which one meets with God's favor and which one God loves. Because we are not to judge that way by circumstances. The Bible tells us that Lazarus was the elect of God and was in the hand of God. And I want to tell you something, he'll never be taken out of that hand. Amen. I'm sure glad that Paul didn't measure life by circumstances, aren't you? The Apostle Paul? What chapter would he have quit in? The last half of nine? Didn't he have to flee from Damascus? Didn't he, in a basket over the wall? Chapter nine, his first city that he goes to? If you measured life by circumstances, he should have quit right then and there. The Lord's not with me. I'm just going to go into retirement. We don't measure things by circumstances. We measure them by the Word of God. This is a comforting sermon for me.
Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. I want to show you something about circumstances. What if God does send a set of circumstances your way that are good? What should good circumstances cause us to do? Should they cause us to get complacent by thinking, the Lord is with me. I'm so blessed. The Lord is with me. I'm so blessed. The Lord is with me. I'm so blessed. Right into complacency. Here's what good, here's what blessings ought to cause us to do. Romans 2 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Amen. Blessings ought to lead us to repentance. I, I'm thinking of Peter. Peter is on a, on a boat. He's fished all night, didn't get a thing. The Lord Jesus comes along and says, try the other side. Or, or try your nets one more time. And Peter puts down his nets one more time. He catches a great multitude of fish. I believe it was a, a 153. There's two events. I get them confused sometimes. He calls John and James over to help in two boats. They're beginning to sink because there's so many fish. Now, is that a blessing? Should he have been punching the air and say, the Lord's with me, my new business, we can expand, hurry, make a stock offering, get six more boats out here, because the Lord's a partner with me now. He fell at his feet and said, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a wicked man. Right. That is what goodness ought to cause us to do. Amen. You say, that's so morbid. Oh, no, because in repentance is the greatest of blessings when the Lord lifts you up. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he'll exalt you in due time. I see John falling down at the feet of the Son of Man in Revelation chapter 1, but I also see the Son of Man reaching down and lifting him back up, and oh, to be lifted up by the Lord Jesus Christ. But the blessings of God ought to lead us to repentance, saying, Lord, you're too good. I'm not worthy. I'm telling you about Monday. This is not fair. I don't deserve this. This earth doesn't deserve it. I dwell in the midst of a nation that doesn't deserve a day like this. Don't measure your life by circumstances. And when you do get a blessing, instead of presuming on it and becoming complacent or lazy, let it lead you to repentance and humble yourself before the great God that is so good. Circumstances. Psalm 50 says, sometimes I'm silent. And when I'm silent, you think that I'm just like you. I'm paraphrasing Psalm 50. You think that I'm just like you, but I want to tell you something God says in Psalm 50, the last four verses. I want to tell you something. If you don't remember me, I'm going to tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. Because these men were getting away with their sins. And they thought that God must be like them. When you're getting away with a sin, God is letting you accumulate wrath so that when his judgment bursts forth, it'll be a bigger amount of water behind the dam. It'll be a larger amount of water behind the dam that bursts forth in his judgment. Did you know that he had an amount of time that he needed Israel to stay in Egypt? Do you know why he needed Israel to stay in Egypt for a while? His wrath against the Canaanites wasn't filled up all to the all the way to the top. 
He wanted to get that great big wine press of his wrath filled all the way to the top. And so they're all thinking, wow, which kingdom do we want to go after next? Which city are we going to build next? And then it burst forth. And in five years, they took the whole land and wiped out every nation in Canaan. Don't you dare judge with the silence of God that you're getting away with some sin in your life. Everything that God gives you, you should respond with thanksgiving, not with presumption. The Bible says, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Amen. Give thanks for everything that God sends your way. Let's deal with comfort for a minute. By comfort, I mean believing that you can measure the will of God with the comfort you have in your soul. Feelings are not a very helpful criterion in determining the will of God. And again, I want to repeat to you how it is said sometimes. I just had a peace in my heart over it. Well, precious, I don't have a peace about what you're doing. So whose peace is more important? Well, I don't know. Well, see, we're right back to where we started with. I don't know. So how do we find the will of God? You may be doing something and you've got a piece about it, but I'm watching you do it and I don't have a piece about it. So what, how are we going to solve the problem? We've got to go to some absolutely faithful criterion. Where's the judge for making decisions? Every time that we say, I had a piece about it, or we make a decision based on how we feel about it, do you know what we're opening ourselves up to? Instead of opening ourselves up to the fate of the pagans, we're opening ourselves up to our deceitful heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? If you are waiting for a peaceful feeling in your, in your inside you about a certain action, if that's what you're setting up as a high criterion for knowing the will of God, you are making your deceitful heart. Do you know what the word deceive means? It means, I am desperately wicked, and therefore, in order to get you to sin, I'm going to give you a feeling of peace so that you will sin and think you're doing the will of God. Amen. That's the application of Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Your heart doesn't say to you, right now I've got a devilish thought, please disregard me for the next ten minutes. Your heart says to you, oh, come on, this is, this is awesome. This is what you want to do. You know it is. Don't you feel peaceful about it? This is a great choice. Remember, it's deceitful. That means it lies to you and doesn't want you to know that it's lying to you. That's your heart. But whenever we say that I'm going to make this choice based on the peace that I have about it, we're setting up that heart. We don't want to set that heart up. We want to keep that heart down and governed. And like I quoted earlier in this message, Acts 26, Paul said, I thought, I verily thought, I truly thought, I believed, I had a great peace and conviction over it that I ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. The words are actually, I verily thought with myself. I truly thought, I believed from all of my conviction and passion that I ought to do things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth but he was dead wrong. Dead wrong. Let's not let that be our judge. Our judge is in your hands. Deuteronomy 29. Amen. Turn to Deuteronomy 29 with me. 
Deuteronomy 29. I've laid the foundation the last two weeks. The Lord's laid the foundation. I didn't know I was going to preach this until I started thinking about it on Monday. Monday, I had a... It was just overwhelming on Monday. You got my... Some of you got the email. You saw it. I was overwhelmed and impressed about the importance of getting away from our feelings and getting away from our circumstances and coming back to the Word of God and how thoroughly it deals with our whole lives. And how deceived we can be if we step outside and have an unconfessed sin in our heart and rejoice in that sunlight and think that that's God saying, you're okay, that's a little sin, hold on, I know exactly how you think. That's just a little sin. I don't consider it that bad. I know that your heart is good. I know that you're doing lots of things right. I know that you'll confess it soon. And I know that Jesus died for it. It's okay. And you reason all that and you say, wow, the Lord is with me. What a day. Thank you, Lord, for health and strength in this beautiful day. And you don't confess your sin. You just presume upon him. And that's what horrified me on Monday, that we would ever do that. Let us humble ourselves before that holy God and realize that he is sending that son on the most hated objects of his animosity. The same son. We measure things by this right here. Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are things that are revealed for us to do. We call that the revealed will of God. And we are to do them. And they're revealed for us to do them. There are secret things that we are not told. The secret things God will do. They belong to Him. Some of those secret things involve your life. But they're God's secrets. And I fear that when we hear someone saying, I need to know the will of God, that they are trying to get into the secret things that belong unto the Lord. It's the revealed things that are our possession. He has given them to us. There are many things appointed for you. Job chapter 23, verses 13 and 14. Many things are appointed for you, and God will do them. But the things that are revealed are what we're supposed to do actively. You will end up doing God's secret will in whatever way that directs your life. But He has revealed things for us to do actively. And we humble ourselves before this Word, and we do His will, and we don't worry about the secret things because we trust in a merciful Creator God. It is not our right privilege, nor do we have the ability to inquire about the secret things as to what they might be. It is our duty to know them, that they are there, that God has his secret things, they belong to him, and there are revealed things that belong to us. If you don't know, if if you're having difficulty following that, think of the crucifixion for just a moment. The revealed things were that innocent men shouldn't be put to death that there have to be two or three witnesses that can confirm that a man is worthy to die. 
That was the law of Moses. They could find no witnesses that could prove that Jesus Christ ought to die, yet they killed him. They broke the revealed will of God. But God's secret will, which we now know because we live on this side of Calvary, was that Jesus Christ would die a cruel death at the hands of wicked men. And we read in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, the apostle Peter preaching, he said, you with wicked hands have crucified the Lord of glory, but you were only doing what his foreknowledge and determinant counsel had determined should be done. Right. Unto Egypt. The revealed will is, love your brothers. They sold their brother into slavery. The secret will of God was that Joseph would be down in Egypt to save the entire posterity of Abraham alive in the middle of a horrible famine. There's the revealed and the secret will of God. We know they exist. This verse tells us they exist. And from the first chapter to the last chapter, we see both of them operating because by the revealed will of God, we see His actions in history. But this Bible has revealed things for us to do. Those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. This is how we know the will of God. It's revealed to us in Holy Scripture. Just think about how simple it is. If you're a woman, what were you created for? Do we need to go to a class to learn this? If you're a woman, you were created to be a help, a helper to a husband. Are there words of this law specifically addressed to you? We come to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives. Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. There's the will of God for a woman. That is an overriding will of God for her life. Whenever she loses sight of that, she's a confused woman. She's an unhappy woman. She becomes a bitter woman. And she's a worthless woman. Because a woman, to fulfill her role, follows what God gave her to do. And from Genesis chapter 2 on, we know what the woman was created for to be a helper to the man. Now, I'm not going into all the verses that there are about women. There's a whole string of them. But the fact is that the will of God for a woman's life, right at the very top, right up there with loving the Lord her God with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength, that's obviously his will also, is to serve her husband. Then there's to love her children. Then there's to love the brethren. Then there's to be a good citizen. Then there's to be a good neighbor. And there's all the commandments that God gives for women. What about men? If you're a man, is it difficult to know? We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first commandment. We're to love our neighbor as ourself. We're to love our wives and be not bitter against them. We're to let our wives satisfy us at all times and to be ravished with her love. We're to dwell with them according to knowledge. First tip Peter 3, 7. And so we have another list showing us our priorities. We're to be good citizens, good, good servants, good masters, good church members, good brethren, good neighbors, good magistrates, if we happen to be in an office of civil authority. It's the will of God. The revealed things belong to us and to our children to do them. What if you're a child? What's the will of God for your life? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first commandment. 
Then there's another commandment. Children, honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. That's the will of God. And God is so kind that he'll even attach a reward to keeping that promise, that commandment, to honor your parents and to obey them. In Ephesians chapter 6, if you're an employee, do you know the will of God? You know what we get all hung up on? Which company should I work for? Which company should I work for? What if I make the wrong decision? I want to tell you something, and I hope you understand it well. God doesn't really care what company you work for. You say, I thought you believed in the sovereignty of God. I do. He'll get you the right one. Don't worry about what company you're going to work for. Do you know what's key? How are you going to work for the company that you end up with? That's key. That's what the Bible addresses. Nowhere in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, do we ever see men getting all worried about what master they're going to be working for. You know, all it says is how to treat the master you've got. Because the issue of success is not finding the perfect employer. The issue of success is behaving yourself perfectly for the employer you've got. Give me a Joseph, and I don't care where he starts. Would you call that below the bottom rung of the ladder? Amen. Did he make it to the top? The top shouldn't even be our ambition. But did he get to the top? Absolutely, he got to the top. If it's your ambition, it will destroy your soul. If it's not your ambition, you have the highest probability of getting somewhere. That's the way the Lord's arranged it. You put your trust in the Lord and he'll bless. Joseph was elevated to the top of Egypt, except for Pharaoh in his throne. But it was all based on the fact that the Lord was with him and the conduct that we see about Joseph was that he was just always keeping God's commandments. When there was a woman that had him in her embrace, trying to force him when he's a single man in a faraway nation, there's no one around. He said, no way can I commit that sin against God. That kind of a man is going up. But what if he didn't go up? The Lord was still with him. And so you still have great blessings. The issue is not so much, I've got to marry the perfect one. If I don't marry the perfect one, my life's going to be ruined. Did any of us marry the perfect one? The issue at stake in a marriage is not having married the perfect one. It's whether you're going to be the perfect one to the one you're married. That's the issue. Do you know why we do all of this thinking about the will of God? Because we want to excuse ourselves. I didn't marry as well as I should have, which is an excuse to God saying, I just can't be a good spouse to the one I'm with. I don't care how you try to reason around those words. When you say I made a mistake, we don't need to hear any of that. There are no mistakes. After it's made, If you made a foolish mistake and you repented of it, should never be brought up again because God saw all of that in his secret things. And now all that is left to you are not his secret things, but his revealed things. As a carnal foolish song would say, love the one you're with. Sorry that that came to my mind at that moment. But that's the word of God. Quit worrying about the one you should have married. You're married to one. See, it doesn't matter who you married, because once you're married, it does matter, of course it does. But my point is, 
that that issue of looking at your spouse and thinking about the, the big issue being, I married the wrong person. No, the big issue is, am I going to love the one God gave me? Because I want to tell you something. All the circumstances and the affection and the timing of you arriving at a certain place to meet a certain person and both of you happening to look at each other at the same time across the crowded room and finding something attractive in each other when there really wasn't anything there in either of you and the two of you ended up, you know what I'm trying to say, and the two of you ended up being married. Do you know what I believe about the providence of God? That was God's choice. And there's no one in here that can say, that you're not married now to someone that was God's choice. Even if you made a horrible mistake and sinned against your parents. Because I hope that by now you've confessed that sin. And so you're married to the one of God's choice. Because God has overruled that sin for you to be married to a particular person, and now it's time for you to do the revealed things. And that's to love your spouse. Instead of worry... Listen... Any two people, any two people that fear God and want to keep His commandments can have a fine marriage if they will just treat the other one the way God's Word tells them to treat the other one. These things that you call feelings that you think will help you once you're married will not help you once you're married. Because once you're married, what it's going to come down to is doing the precious will of God. And if you're measuring yourself by circumstances, you're going to get up about the third week and say, you have got to be kidding me. What have I got myself into? But a godly man doesn't say that. He says, this is the spouse that God gave me. What can I do for them this day? You don't like your boss. He's a crook. Your boss is a crook? Let's see if I can find the will of God. Can I find the will of God if your boss is a crook? Where am I going to go? Where? Beautiful. 1 Peter chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. There's the will of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Your boss is a crook. The Lord doesn't care. The Lord just says, that's another opportunity for you to serve me by serving that crooked master well out of a conscience toward me. That's the will of God. And my point being, see, it doesn't matter. If you spend all of your time, oh, I've got 50 different employers in the Greenville area that could hire me. What if they're crooks? You still have the will of God. God doesn't really care. If God hasn't addressed work for this employer or that employer... Go to what work for the one that, that works on Wade Hampton versus the one that's on Haywood Road, then he doesn't care. If you have submitted yourself to the will of God in all areas, and you're being wise and you're being prudent, you've used counselors, you're trusting him, you're putting a job in its proper place, you've done a reasonable amount of effort to find these employers, you don't have to wonder, I wonder if there's another employer in town who's about to put an ad in the paper, but it's not there yet. Do you know how long you could wait for that one? Now, if there's anyone in this church that can tend toward this absurd reasoning, he's preaching to you. But God's been merciful to me. God's been merciful to me. That kind of reasoning will keep you from ever doing anything. 
Oh, there's a precious passage in Ecclesiastes. It's chapter 11, the first few verses. It says, cast your bread on the water. Right. Cast it. Cast it. You don't know when it's going to come back or how it's going to come back. God doesn't care. If you've satisfied everything else, God doesn't care whether you buy a Ford or a Chevy or a Toyota. How are you going to, what are you going to do? Say, Lord, I've got these three cars. I'm going to go out and get the paper in the morning, and if it's got water on it, like you did to the fleece of Gideon, that's going to be the Toyota. You don't do that. How do you find out? Say, Lord, these three cars, they all look equal to me. There's no, and he may not even give you an answer. Just pick one. But you can say, Lord, open the doors and close the doors. And so you pick up the phone and you call on one of them. It's been sold. You know what you can know about? If you have done everything right by humbling yourself before God, the car is in the proper place, you're not spending too much money, you've done a reasonable amount of effort to find a mechanically reliable car, and now you've got three options facing you. How do you pick the one? What's the one that God has for you? Start down the list. You say, but what if they should be in the reverse order? Listen, there's a God in heaven. And this is where we trust him. Just pick up the phone and call. If one sold, guess what the Lord's will is? Not that one. Not that one. Do, do I have a Bible example for this? I've taught you in Acts chapter 16. The Apostle Paul was in Galatia. I love this. The Apostle Paul was in Galatia. And he is being led by the Spirit of God. He's covered all the churches in Galatia. They're at his back. It's east. It's east back there. He's got three directions he can go. South, north, and west. He tries to go south into Asia. The Lord won't let him. So he turns around. He tries to go north into Bithynia. Remember when I preached you, preached this to you? He, the Lord wouldn't let him go north into Bithynia. Well, if you've already covered this ground back here, and you can't go north and you can't go south, there's only one direction left. And so he went west. And he ends up at Troas. And what happens to him at Troas? He has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us, which was due west. And so it says we took a straight course. Because we assuredly gathered the Lord had called us to preach to those in Macedonia. So when you've got equal opportunities that you don't know which to do, and you've pursued the will of God according to his word as far as you can, then just start down through them. Ask the Lord to close doors. And when the Lord closes the door, don't you dare walk away, hang up that phone and say, I wanted that one. If you wanted that one, you should have called earlier. Don't do that to the Lord because you've just put it in the Lord's hands. Lord, open doors and close doors. I just had an experience with my son over a job this way. And we had a wonderful prayer meeting before he went to an interview Totally putting it in the Lord's hands. Lord, we trust you because you can see the future and we can't. Therefore, if he doesn't get an offer from this job or if this door is closed, we're going to take that as a blessing from you that you've got a better thing coming later. Right. But we're going to pursue it because from our vantage point, it looks like a good opportunity. But we're going to trust you for the things we cannot see. And so you start down through and the Lord can open and close doors just like he did for Paul. And Paul was following the Spirit of God. And still, he thought he should go south, and he would get rejected. He thought he should go north, he got rejected. 
And so he went west. And so we have equal opportunities. That's how we pursue them. We put them in the hands of the Lord and we start down through them. Do you know who the real brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ are? Those that do the will of God. And the will of God is all here. This Bible that we have is the will of God. Now you tell me I'm working for a man that I don't like. Well, I just go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and I can handle that one. Well, I'm married to a man that's not converted. I can go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and handle that one. Well, I've got a wife that's so weak, I can go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 and I can handle that one. And you can handle all those things too if we learn the Word of God. Amen. I live in a country that's pagan. What should I do about the taxes? Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, you pay them. Of course you do. When was the last time there was a country that wasn't pagan? Ours is funding abortions with our tax money. Doesn't make any difference. God already dealt with that. The most pagan nation on earth at the time was the Roman Empire. And Paul taught that taxes and even tribute money, which is the wages of a foreign oppressor, was to be paid anyway. All of it's in the the Word of God. You know, our problem is not so much knowing the will of God. It's not wanting to do it. So we're always looking for excuses, brethren. God has made his will rather clear in the word of God, and we should want to do it. The problem is we resent it. We don't want to do it. It looks like it's too costly. When if you would do it, the blessings of Psalm 112 are resting upon you. If you would do the will of God. But oh, when you're in the flesh, to think about jumping across the chasm and doing everything just the way God said. Listen, all of you are married. I'm married. Most of you are parents. I'm a parent. We know that the Bible tells us certain things that we ought to be doing, and because of habit or because of resentment or because we're in the flesh or for whatever reason, it looks so hard for us to do what God has said. Repent and do it. It's the will of God. Let's do the will of God. The biggest issue is not... What job, what house, what car, what spouse, what college, what major? The biggest issue is, what are you going to do with the house, the car, the major, the spouse, the job that you end up with? What will you do to please the Lord? You know, the Lord's given counselors, parent, pastors, parents, husbands, masters, friends, are given by the Lord to help. They can help in two ways. One, the first way they ought to help is to make sure that you've Measured the will of God by His Word. The very first thing we can do for one another is to help remind them of things contained in the Word of God to make sure that we haven't missed one of the 31,165 verses that might apply to the situation. Amen. That's the first thing. Then the second thing is, if it's not dealt with in the Word of God, then God must not care a whole lot about it, and all you need is some wise counsel, like a mechanic looking at those three automobiles to make sure they're going to run. The main main emphasis is, is it in the Word of God? If the Word of God has dealt with it, here's what the Bible says, let's do that. No questions. If the Bible doesn't deal with it, then it's a matter of liberty. And so we just look to our own judgment and, and to where the Lord's brought us in the way of knowledge. And then, brethren, you have another tool to help you make a decision to stay in the will of God, and that's your conscience. And I've taught about it briefly the last couple of weeks, but if you'll keep your conscience sensitive by obeying, 
If you'll keep it knowledgeable by learning, your conscience can help you in decisions, and it is the candle of the Lord. And your conscience can give you a feeling of peace and comfort and excuse you when you obey and do righteousness. But your conscience has to be measured by the Word of God. Amen. Has to be measured by the Word of God. Paul's conscience told him he ought to do everything he could against Jesus of Nazareth. But his conscience was instructed. The more you obey, the more you do the will of God, the more God will lead you. Nathan got up last Sunday evening and told you about Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 18. The path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. A shining light. If you're at some place at night and you get in your car and when you pull the headlights on, those lights do not light up the road all the way home into your garage. They only light up the road about 100 yards in front of your car and you're traveling at 60 miles an hour. That means there is very small margin for error. But you trust your lights. Can you trust the Lord? How do you know the road hasn't been washed out in front of you? You trust your lights? And so you get in that car and you stomp on the accelerator and you take off with that limited amount of light in front of you. But as you travel the distance that the light covers, the light shines further. The path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. If you are doing the will of God in every area that you know, He will guide you and help you in the areas that you do not know. Look at Philippians chapter 3. For it, it's my favorite passage right now, and you're going to get it soon. But I have to show you this verse about our minds. Philippians chapter 3, Paul is describing his mind. How that he was pressing. Verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. Everyone in here that's a true child of God and concerned about their soul and concerned about Christ should want to have a mind just like Paul's. Be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Is that a wonderful promise? Amen. I'm so excited about this passage. You say, why isn't it this morning? Just be patient for me. It's got to be perfect or I can't do it. And all perfection lies with the Lord, brethren. Amen. Philippians 3, 8 through 21 is an awesome passage. He tells you what mind you ought to have. And if in any area of your mind you are off track, if you've chosen Jesus Christ as the goal for your life and your soul, he'll reveal wherever you're off, where your mind may be off the track. Brethren, we can have confidence in the will of God. The Bible tells us this, Proverbs 16, verse 9, A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Right. If you have a desire in your heart to do something, and you've looked in the Word of God, there's nothing prohibiting it. And if you were to do it, it wouldn't take too much of your time. It wouldn't require too much money. It wouldn't compromise your testimony in Christ. And you want to do it? Do you know what the Bible says? Go do it. And do you know what He promises to do? He will direct your steps. So Ruth and Naomi, sitting at home, looking in the cupboard, realizing there was no food, Ruth said, I'm going to go glean. Because that's something I can do. I'm a widow woman. I don't know what else to do. I'm going to go glean. The Lord directed her steps to what field? Boaz. 
the field of Boaz. And she ended up being the great-grandmother of David and a great-great-grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though she was a Moabitess. This is the confidence we can have. Jonathan was restless one day sitting in camp. Jonathan was restless. I need something. I need some physical exercise. He says, armor bearer, let's go try a garrison of the Philistines. He said, it doesn't matter whether it's with many or with few, it's the Lord. What difference does it make if the army is 1,417,000 or two? It doesn't make any difference. And so there goes Jonathan off. I want to tell you something. Men who understand the will of God are the great performers in the history of the world because they're not afraid of anything. Because God is with them. Remember the movie that we have in our church library about Oliver Cromwell. Remember his statement to his troops before one of those important battles? He rides along on his horse and he tells his men, keep your powder dry and put your trust in the Lord. We have our part and we trust the Lord for the rest. A man's heart deviseth his way, and the Lord directs his steps. You, divide, you pick a career. Go ahead and pick a career. There's not a perfect career for anyone. How do you know what your perfect career is? You haven't worked yet. Isn't that amazing? The kids in school are wondering, what major do I pick, or what job do I pick, when you don't know anything about what's out there? It's, such, it's, it's difficult. But if you've got something in your heart that leans in one direction, go with that. And trust the Lord to direct your steps. My father helped me at a certain point in my life. It was in his heart. He told me to take a job and the Lord directed my steps. And they were very blessed steps. And I'm thankful for them. Though there were temptations along with those steps also. The godly approach to life is if God hasn't dealt with it. And God has dealt with a lot. I fear that we excuse ourselves sometimes by rejecting what God has dealt with. Mm -hmm. God's dealt with a lot. But if God hasn't dealt with it, then it's your choice. All he tells you to do is this, James 4.15, that if you're going to go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, and that's a lot of planning. Wife, we're going to take the kids and we're going to move to this city. I know it's going to, we're going to have to relocate. I know we're going to have to rent a new facility there for our business. But let's stay there a year and give this business a shot. And you know how we're supposed to say? If the Lord will. But that planning, all that planning that goes into that is your choice. And you just submit it to the will of God. And do you know what, how much peace there is in that? What if you go into that city and it doesn't work? Say, well, I guess that's just one of the statistics of American businesses. 95% of all businesses fail in the first three years. No. The Lord God must have a different choice for me. And so we submit ourselves to that. The Bible wants us to live a carefree life. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We start with the word of God. We do not start with circumstances or feelings. We start right here. After the word of God has been addressed, we use wise counselors, we use our conscience. After those have been addressed, we go ahead and make whatever is in our hearts, because the Lord stirs up the hearts of men. Right. And after we have gone with our heart, and we can see circumstances that are outside of our control, we still live a carefree life 
by turning them all over to the Lord. Be careful for nothing, but turn them all over to the Lord and trust Him, and He'll give you perfect peace. May God save us from confusion, fear, perplexity, to understanding what the will of the Lord is, and cause us and help us to live confidently and carelessly, and I mean that in a wise sense, doing the will of God, and thus be His true brothers and sisters. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.